Chapter Eleven of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. The Country of the Camisards. Epigraph. We travelled in the print of olden wars, yet all the land was green, and love we found and peace, where fire and war had been. They pass and smile, the children of the sword, no more the sword they wield. And oh, how deep the corn along the battlefield. W. P. Bannatyne Across the Lozère The track that I had followed in the evening soon died out, and I continued to follow over a bald turf ascent a row of stone pillars such as had conducted me across the Goulet. It was already warm. I tied my jacket on the pack and walked in my knitted waistcoat. Modestine herself was in high spirits and broke of her own accord, for the first time in my experience, into a jolting trot that sent the oats swashing in the pocket of my coat. The view back upon the northern Gévaudan extended with every step. Scarce a tree, scarce a house appeared upon the fields of wild hill that ran north, east, and west all blue and gold in the haze and sunlight of the morning. A multitude of little birds kept sweeping and twittering about my path. They perched on the stone pillars, they pecked and strutted on the turf, and I saw them circle in volleys in the blue air, and show from time to time translucent flickering wings between the sun and me. Almost from the first moment of my march, a faint large noise, like a distant surf, had filled my ears. Sometimes I was tempted to think it the voice of a neighbouring waterfall, and sometimes a subjective result of the utter stillness of the hill. But as I continued to advance, the noise increased, and became like the hissing of an enormous tea-urn, and at the same time breaths of cool air began to reach me from the direction of the summit. At length I understood. It was blowing stiffly from the south upon the other slope of the Lozère, and every step that I took I was drawing nearer to the wind. Although it had been long desired, it was quite unexpectedly at last that my eyes rose above the summit. A step that seemed no way more decisive than many other steps that had preceded it, and, like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, I took possession in my own name of a new quarter of the world. For behold, Instead of the gross turf rampart I had been mounting for so long, a view into the hazy air of heaven, and a land of intricate blue hills below my feet. The Lozère lies nearly east and west, cutting Gévaudan into two unequal parts. Its highest point, this Pic de Finiès on which I was then standing, rises upwards of 5,600 feet above the sea and in clear weather commands a view over all lower Languedoc to the Mediterranean Sea. I have spoken with people who either pretended or believed that they had seen from the Pic de Finiens white ships sailing by Montpellier and Sète. Behind was the upland northern country through which my way had lain, peopled by a dull race, without wood, without much grandeur of hill form, and famous in the past for little besides wolves. But in front of me, Half veiled in sunny haze lay a new Gévaudan, rich, picturesque, illustrious for stirring events. 
Speaking largely, I was in the Cévennes at Monastier, and during all my journey. But there is a strict and local sense in which only this confused and shaggy country at my feet has any title to the name. And in this sense the peasantry employ the word. These are the Cévennes with an emphasis, the Cévennes of the Cévennes. In that undecipherable labyrinth of hills, a war of bandits, a war of wild beasts, raged for two years between the Grand Monarch with all his troops and marshals on the one hand, and a few thousand Protestant mountaineers upon the other. A hundred and eighty years ago the Camisards held a station even on the Lozère where I stood. They had an organization, arsenals, a military and religious hierarchy. Their affairs were the discourse of every coffee-house in London. England sent fleets in their support. Their leaders prophesied and murdered. With colours and drums and the singing of old French psalms, their bands sometimes affronted daylight, marched before walled cities, and dispersed the generals of the king, and sometimes at night or in masquerade possessed themselves of strong castles and avenged treachery upon their allies and cruelty upon their foes. There, a hundred and eighty years ago, was the chivalrous Roland, Count and Lord Roland, Generalissimo of the Protestants in France, grave, silent, imperious, pockmarked ex-dragoon, whom a lady followed in his wanderings out of love. There was Cavalier, a baker's apprentice with a genius for war, elected brigadier of Camisard at seventeen, to die at fifty-five, the English governor of Jersey. There again was Castany, a partisan leader in a voluminous peruke, and with a taste for controversial divinity. Strange generals, who moved apart to take counsel with the god of hosts, and fled or offered battle, set sentinels, or slept in an unguarded camp, as the spirit whispered to their hearts. And there, to follow these and other leaders, was the rank and file of prophets and disciples, bold, patient, indefatigable, hardy to run upon the mountains, cheering their rough life with psalms, eager to fight, eager to pray, listening devoutly to the oracles of brain-sick children, and mystically putting a grain of wheat among the pewter balls with which they charged their muskets. I had travelled hitherto through a dull district, and in the track of nothing more notable than the child-eating beast of Gévaudan, the Napoleon Bonaparte of wolves. But now I was to go down into the scene of a romantic chapter, or better a romantic footnote, in the history of the world. What was left of all this bygone dust and heroism? I was told that Protestantism still survived in this head-seat of Protestant resistance. So much the priest himself had told me in the monastery parlour. But I had yet to learn if it were a bare survival, or a lively and generous tradition. Again, if in the northern Cévennes the people are narrow in religious judgments, and more filled with zeal than charity, what was I to look for in this land of persecution and reprisal, in a land where the tyranny of the church produced the Camisard rebellion, and the terror of the Camisard threw the Catholic peasantry into legalized revolt upon the other side, so that Camisard and Florentin skulked for each other's lives among the mountains? Just on the brow of the hill, where I paused to look before me, the series of stone pillars came abruptly to an end, and only a little below, a sort of track appeared, and began to go down a breakneck slope, turning like a corkscrew as it went. It led into a valley between falling hills, stubbly with rocks, like a reaped field of corn, 
and floored farther down with green meadows. I followed the track with precipitation. The steepness of the slope, the continual agile turning of the line of the descent, and the old unwearied hope of finding something new in a new country, all conspired to lend me wings. Yet a little lower, and a stream began, collecting itself together out of many fountains, and soon making a glad noise among the hills. Sometimes it would cross the track in a bit of a waterfall with a pool, in which Modestine refreshed her feet. The whole descent is like a dream to me, so rapidly was it accomplished. I had scarcely left the summit ere the valley had closed round my path, and the sun beat upon me, walking in a stagnant lowland atmosphere. The track became a road, and went up and down in easy undulations. I passed cabin after cabin, but all seemed deserted, and I saw not a human creature, nor heard any sound except that of the stream. I was, however, in a different country from the day before. The stony skeleton of the world was here vigorously displayed to sun and air. The slopes were steep and changeful. Oak trees clung along the hills, well-grown, wealthy in leaf, and touched by the autumn with strong and luminous colours. Here and there another stream would fall in from the right or the left, down a gorge of snow-white and tumultuary boulders. The river in the bottom, for it was rapidly growing a river, collecting on all hands as it trotted on its way, here foamed a while in desperate rapids, and there lay in pools of the most enchanting sea-green, shot with watery browns. As far as I have gone, I have never seen a river of so changeful and delicate a hue. Crystal was not more clear, the meadows were not by half so green, and at every pool I saw, I felt a thrill of longing to be out of these hot, dusty, and material garments, and bathe my naked body in the mountain air and water. All the time as I went on, I never forgot it was the Sabbath. The stillness was a perpetual reminder, and I heard in spirit the church bells clamouring all over Europe, and the psalms of a thousand churches. At length a human sound struck upon my ear, a cry strangely modulated between pathos and derision. And looking across the valley, I saw a little urchin sitting in a meadow with his hands about his knees, and dwarfed to almost comical smallness by the distance. But the rogue had picked me out as I went down the road from Oakwood on to Oakwood driving Modestine, and he made me the compliments of the new country in this tremulous high-pitched salutation. And as all noises are lovely and natural at a sufficient distance, this also, coming through so much clean hill air and crossing all the green valley, sounded pleasant to my ear, and seemed a thing rustic like the oaks or the river. A little after, the stream that I was following fell into the town, at Pont de Montvert of bloody memory. End of chapter 11